Do you know what the secret is to keep a baby's skin healthy? The secret is a diaper that doesn't leave skin wet. You've heard me talk about Pampers Swaddlers on our podcast many, many times now, and that's because Pampers Swaddlers is the diaper for healthy baby skin. Pampers Swaddlers absorbs wetness better than the leading value brand and provides up to 100% leak-proof skin protection and up to 0% skin irritation. And if you're a fan of Pampers, you've got to check out their new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes, which clean better than Huggies Natural Care and are five times stronger, so they resist tearing during a diaper change. With Free and Gentle, mess meets its match. And if you're like me and you love saving and getting rewarded for something you gotta buy anyway, like diapers, don't forget to download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. You can redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Try Swaddlers with new Pampers free and gentle wipes for healthy baby skin. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to ABG, Asian Boss Girl, a podcast for the modern day Asian American woman. I'm Janet. I'm Helen. And I'm Mel. By now, most of you probably know that I am freezing my eggs. At the time of this recording, I have just finished my first cycle, in fact, only three days ago, but I am planning to do one or two more cycles to collect more eggs. Jay, I just want to say that I am so proud of you and amazed by your courage and your vulnerability to share your journey through this episode. Thank you for sharing this with us. I think your transparency is going to provide a lot of comfort to people out there who are in the same boat as you. So when you first started thinking about this seriously, that was when we had Dr. Andy Huang on our podcast last year, right? Yeah, it was a while ago. Yeah. Last year, we recorded episode 138, When is the Right Time to Freeze My Eggs and IVF Questions with Dr. Huang. And he walked us through some of the more technical details of fertility. So for anyone who is looking for more information about egg freezing or IVF, you can also refer to that past episode. But I remember that's when we started having conversations with you and you were just more seriously considering doing this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it started pretty much kind of more seriously with that episode with him. Yeah, and it's also crazy to think that we're actually a month away from Janet's 37th birthday. And, you know, Ooh, yep. <laughs> I can't believe September is already coming around so quickly. And I I know. I will say, although I may be the youngest of the, of the trio and I'm on the younger spectrum in my 30s, you know, witnessing UJ go through this process has me starting to think about, you know, where am I in terms of my timeline for children and fertility too. Mm-hmm. So I'm very much looking forward to today's episode where we'll be asking Janet to share her personal experience with egg freezing, you know, why she decided to do this, what was her research process like and why now? And also she'll be sharing some helpful tips she learned so far in her journey. Yes. So let's get started with when did you decide it was the right time to freeze your eggs and why? This is, I think, the ultimate question that a lot of women kind of 
you know, try to wrap their head around, right? And I always thought it was just like aging. Like that's probably the only reason why someone would do this, right? But I actually learned in my research process and through Instagram, because I was sharing my story, that I got a lot of messages from women who will decide to freeze their eggs for different reasons um, at different times. And one of them is, you know, if you're going through, say, like a really um, harsh disease like cancer, you're going to go through medical treatment that could affect your fertility. You can freeze your eggs before you go through that treatment process. So I was opened up, I guess like the idea and understanding that there's so many different reasons that would bring a woman to this process and the state um, and this experience was eye-opening for me. Uh, however, for me, it was the the more kind of common reason of aging. And when I reflect back to um, when I thought about really wanting kids, it wasn't really until my early 30s that I became more certain that I wanted to have kids. And it's because that's around the time that people close to me in my life, especially family members, started having kids. Once I became an aunt and I had these little humans that <laughs> you know I was blood related to and feeling that emotional connection with them and seeing their relationship with like my cousins and, and things like that, um, that was when it really, I was like, wow, for the first time, I can definitively say that I do really, I want kids. And at that time I was already in my early 30s. Um, however, for most of the years that followed, I wasn't in serious relationships. Um, you know, and I think you ladies, like we started ABG it was a five years ago. So I was like 33, 32, 33. So I was just starting to be like, yeah, I think I do want kids. Before that, I was still kind of like, you know, not really sure. Um, and for better or for worse, that was just my, my lifestyle, um, for anyone who knows me for the most of my 20s and early 30s, I was just, I'm a very independent person. I focused a lot, maybe too much on my career and my own life. And I didn't prioritize, um, you know, dating and being in long-term relationships. And I also just, you know, wasn't finding anyone that was a fit. So all along in my early 30s, knowing that I had this mindset about dating where I wasn't like as serious about it, but also realizing that, hey, I do want kids and I'm getting older, um, I knew that the math wasn't adding up, right? So I would kind of talk about egg freezing jokingly uh, and just kind of was like, oh, that's like a thing that's distant in the future. And then it makes me feel like I have more time and I have options. Um, however, once I turned 35, I started really being serious about wanting to find a partner. And, um, you know, I was really, really actively dating um, and became more like invested in trying to find a partner, which also meant it was emotionally draining for me. And unfortunately, from 35 uh, till now, I haven't had, I'm still single, right? So it hasn't been fruitful. Um, but turning 35 and starting to date more seriously, not having a fruitful relationship meant that I started taking egg freezing more seriously. The main two concerns that I had though, which I think I feel like a lot of women share are one, the idea of adding like unnatural hormones to my body, right? Like all this medication that you're putting into your system. Uh, and then secondly, it was a cost. Um, I just had heard that it was an expensive procedure and I had not, you know, if I just barely thought that, realized that I wanted kids, I definitely had not been saving up for potentially like a big uh, process like this. And then we had Dr. Andy Huang on the podcast last year, uh, almost about a year ago this time. And he was able to kind of calm down some of my hesitations around those two topics. Um, I was able to get more details from him, data points on those concerns. He had shared that any hormones or medication you're putting in your body are actually things your body naturally creates. They're just doing it in a higher dosage. Um, and then also he shared with us like cost estimates. So now I was like, okay, I can at least, even though I was so shocked and I'm like, oh, <laughs> I was starting to wrap my head around it. Um, and also in, 
in the last like couple of years, I had um, a really good friend of mine start going through the IVF process of wanting to have kids. And for anyone who doesn't know, the first half of IVF is the same as the egg freezing process. Uh, she's a very close friend. So she started, I would have really long conversations with her where she shared with me her research, her step-by-step experiences, and it just made everything less scary. And then I still remember the one thing she said when we were out to lunch was, honestly, Janet, like, I think if I had known about this when I was younger, like if I was a woman in my early 30s now, like single, I think I wish I had froze my eggs. Like I feel like that's the one thing that if I could go back, I would do. And um, I started hearing this from a number of women. So that's when I was like, okay, I think I'm going to actually set an appointment. Um, And also to give context for the emotional partner seeking part of this, um, I think all of you on the podcast have heard me talk about my dating life for the past couple of years. And the last two years through pandemic and whatnot, I have uh, been on so many dates. I've had so many conversations with guys. I have spent hours, hours, like I don't, maybe thousands of left, right swipes back and forth. Um, and then, you know, I had two pretty serious four month like pre relationships where we actively considered each other for marriage. Uh, so I was like kind of, I feel like, you know, running near the end of my like, trying really hard on the, on finding a partner, hoping that I would have time to make this happen naturally. And I think after the end of last year, it was like my second more significant quote unquote breakup. Um, I started to realize, okay, now I really am getting a lot more into my thir- the latter half of my 30s. And it doesn't look like I'm going to be in a position to meet someone and intentionally and naturally have a baby in the next year or two. Um, and now I've also had time to sit down and process what egg freezing would be like, how I would need to like adjust my schedule for it, what the cost could be. And then just hearing more friends doing it as well, I became, you know, like the downside of egg freezing started feeling less less negative and my desire for wanting insurance became a lot stronger. So the real catalyst, even though you can hear that it's been a long time that I've been considering it, is what really made me kind of pull the plug in going to seek a consultation and then ultimately signing up for it was one, being six months away from turning 37 and being still very, very single. And two, after I sat down and had my initial consultation and a couple of rounds of evaluation and I, my doctor gave me the actual plan that I'd be going through and after getting the specific treatment plan that I would be going through and realizing that I was going to be doing a less intense medication um, procedure, which I'll get into more detail later, but expect knowing what to expect in terms of the medication, number of rounds that I'd have to do and the cost, I became a lot more comfortable and was like, okay, I can move forward with this. Thank you, Jay, for sharing that. I think it's so important to talk about this because I remember when we were recording with Dr. Andy Huang, I was like, isn't egg freezing still a fairly, like relatively new thing? And he was like, no, it's been around for a while. And it's because we haven't talked about it much as a society about like the actual details of what goes on, how much does it cost, like how invasive is it? Because it just sounds like a scary process to remove Mm -hmm. eggs from from where like holy moly like how many how yeah. like what's the process and no one no one like really knew so mm-hmm. i think the fact that you were able to talk to some friends who had already gone through it helped you through it and i'm really hoping that this episode also helps anyone out there who is just like thinking about it or curious about it but hasn't had any friends who have talked to them about it before so it's really cool that you're sharing this this journey with us you also shared with us that you found out during your assessment that you had a fairly unique situation, right? Yeah. 
So it was during my my first con- first couple consultations with Dr. Huang that I learned that um, I actually have a lower follicle count than the average woman my age. And um, for those who may not understand within the, the ovaries, you have various follicles and each follicle will drop one egg during a period. So the average woman at 37, you should have nine to 12 follicles. Um, me, I have actually only four to five. And he said, there's no, like, it's not, the reason for this is usually it's typically genetic. Like if you're, it's probably just been passed down. Um, and it doesn't necessarily mean then that you are going to have, you won't be able to get pregnant naturally because the quality of your eggs are still that of a 37 year old. It's just that you have less of them. So I think finding this out, like at first it was a little scary, but then I think hearing him talk about it where he didn't seem as phased. And he said, that just means that Um, A, it's really good that we found out that you have a lower follicle count now, so we can just start the procedure. And what we'll do is just do more rounds of of this like egg freezing process. And each round, I'm going to give you less medication because usually we give the medication for someone with like nine to 12 follicles. Since you only have four to five, it doesn't make sense for me to juice you up on all these meds, right? They're not going to, you don't have enough stuff in your body (laughs) to collect them. So we'll do less medication and then collect less number of follicles each time, but we'll just do the procedure more times. And um, actually cost-wise, and I'll go into more detail of the cost later, but medication is actually one of the more expensive parts of this process. So me requiring less medication for each round meant that price-wise, I was going to pretty much end up um, within the range of what I was expecting to spend as someone going into this with like uh, a normal follicle count. Can we also just do a little like anatomy scan here? So you're using the words follicle, ovaries, egg. That, those are great questions. Um, and, and to be honest, like, yeah, this, I think for anybody who tries to understand, like when you're going into the consultations, it does feel a little overwhelming when they're trying to, they're using all these like terms and stuff. Um, but I just kept it simple and knew that I associated one follicle with one egg. And the goal was always to collect a good amount of eggs that would reach a, a certain level of maturity. So in a woman's body, you got the uterus, and then the ovaries are the side little fluffy things. <laughs> are the, they're the parts of your organ that that hold the fault fo- that are like are consisting of the follicles, and then within the follicles is the egg that drops. I don't. Someone's a doctor out there, and I I'm not a doctor, so but that was my general understanding. And so th- as a patient throughout this process, I just know that we're concerned with wanting to get a certain amount of eggs and follicles, and it's not as easy as like we're aiming for a number because. Um, you also care about the quality of the eggs. And also each woman has a different case and the doctor and clinic you go to might have different numbers that they're trying to hit um, that they consider comfortable. Mm -hmm. So we always talk about how when you're born, you're born with all of the eggs that you're ever going to have in your body. And, And if anything, the number of eggs is only depleting over time, right? Is it also that the follicles are depleting over time and not just the eggs? I believe so. I believe so, yeah. But the thing is, I think that people get scared of also is like, oh, if it means you're born with a set number of eggs, then by taking them out, is it affecting, like if I do this and I try to get pregnant naturally, does that mean it's like lowering my egg preserve? But it's not because you're naturally, you're going to have a period and release that egg anyway. Mm. Um, So at least from my understanding, it doesn't, it doesn't take away from your current reserve. Got it. Thanks for answering my questions <laughs> yeah I thought I should probably know as a 30 something year old woman but you know <laughs> no there's no reason to really know it you know until you have to um yeah <laughs> I had a follow-up question actually so I don't think we share this on the podcast but um I remember mm-hmm. a couple of years ago I think Janet Helen and myself we did like a like a fertility test 
And mm-hmm. I remember, Janet, that your test came out saying that you might, I forgot what it was, but it was something like, oh, you might be at risk for something or like have a lower, lower mm-hmm. count of something. So I wonder if that actually is correlated to now finding out that you had smaller follicle count. And I also wonder if that test result also made you think about egg freezing as well. Yeah. So when I talked about, I was like joking about it in my early thirties. Um, I think it was around then that I had taken a modern fertility test and, um, I did get that. I got, it was like one of the hormones that measures your egg reserve was slightly lower, but they, um, they're not able to tell you the exact number. And so it was just like, oh, it's lower, but it's not like low enough to be concerned. But that was a flag mm-hmm. to me. So I, I was starting to think about it. But once again, I just still felt like, oh, but I still have time. Like I could meet someone in a in the next couple of months or a year and have a kid in a year or two. Um, but now I'm like even older mm-hmm. and I, you know, <laughs> met someone. So, but yeah, I, I would say the one thing I really like about having access to things like modern fertility or other do- those tests for women is like now you can at least maybe you can catch a flag a little earlier. Yeah. And I speaking of like flags and all these things, I also know you're a very thorough person. Like how did you go about with your research? So when it comes to the research for this doctor, I actually did not um, check in with other doctors. And I think it was mostly because we had such a strong connection with Dr. Huang um, when he came onto our episode. And he is a part of Reproductive Partners that has an office in Beverly Hills. And that is the clinic that I ultimately um, am working with. So he was the first person I reached out to to do a phone consultation with. And um, after after also talking to a lot of my girlfriends who had done it and hearing about their experiences, I was able to kind of like internally check what he was telling me and be like, that's consistent, that's consistent. So, um, you know, I think also for me, I was fighting against a bit of a timeline. Like I knew that, I had heard from girls that this procedure could take a couple of months. And I was like, look, I if I am going to research like a bunch of different doctors, like this might take me another couple of months just to do the research. From what we ha- we heard from him on the podcast and from what he was telling me when we, we had our conversation um, and what I had heard from other girlfriends, I felt like um, I really liked the approach that he was going to take and I liked his clinic's approach. I Definitely, I felt like he was a trustworthy source. Um, but for anyone who's, because I know that egg freezing has become so common now that there's a lot of different clinics that can um, that will offer it. One of the key things that another woman I talked to had pointed out was to look for a clinic that uses vitrification as their freezing method because that is a higher success rate um, for when they defrost the eggs that you'll actually be able to preserve more versus if they're using a more old school technology, you lose a lot of the eggs. Um, but yeah, for the most part, probably, you know, go through people that, you know, have already been to the doctor, I think is a, is a good way to go about it. Got it. And obviously you're sharing with all of us here on this podcast, which is quite a lot of people. Um, but we also know you're really close with your parents. I don't even know if my parents know what egg freezing is and the technology around that. Do you, do your parents know that you're doing this right now? Yeah. So what is kind of strange about this is like, I... I'm really close with my parents and I tell them like everything, right? Um, And they have been kind of asking about kids and stuff. And so you would think that maybe I would mention this to them to be like, hey, I'm doing something about this. But for some reason, like the times that I went home to visit on the weekends, I just, I had a weird shyness around it. And I was trying to think through like, why, why am I hesitant to tell them? And I realized that I think deep down, I am still even though I feel like I shouldn't be but I am maybe kind of ashamed or disappointed that 
Like I have to be going through this process because in my mind, emotionally, I still feel like I have failed to get a partner at the proper time to have kids in this ideal time frame, mm-hmm. right? As if getting a partner and, and getting pregnant is something to achieve or win at. And, um, you know, like I have seen, I have heard and seen like other women who've produced content around, you know, fertility that they start to feel like it's their fault. And I always thought, how could you? Like, that doesn't make sense. It's not, you don't control that. But I think until you're in that situation and you realize it's not rational. It's mm-hmm. just it's just reinforced by like the fact that it's not common, that you don't know too many other people doing this. Um, and so, yeah, realizing that maybe emotionally I felt a little bit of shame around it. Um, I have now have told them, um, but it definitely was like, a, um, like, huh, how come? I didn't actually tell them until I started it mm-hmm. and was like about to go into like surgery for the procedure. Um, but I guess I, I share this because I, I think for any woman going through this like you're feeling maybe a little taboo about it is normal unfortunately but I'm hoping that with you know the ability to talk about it more that we can understand that a lot of women actually are using this because it's become available as a technology now much more easily you know and much more accessibly and also I you know like my mom had mentioned in passing that um you know I think and maybe a lot of other uh people with Chinese mothers or Asian mothers can relate to this, but there's a general like idea around, about health and fertility. I think in the Chinese culture, that's like to try to, to, to do things the natural way and to not go through like invasive, intense, like drugs and and treatments. So I remember she had said like, oh yeah, it's okay if you don't want to kids, just maybe don't do anything like, um, you know, that's like, like more intense in technology for like operations Mm -hmm. or stuff. Um, and you know, but when I told her ultimately I was doing this, I think she is supportive. It's just I know that she had that initial little mm-hmm. bit of bias. Um, but that is, you know, that's just kind of the different way of maybe how they were raised and how I am raised and what I am finding is available for me. Thanks for sharing, Jay. I feel this is actually really interesting. And I appreciate you being really vulnerable about this because I think I think when I even talk to like some family members or even you watch shows, like I remember season one of Bling Empire. Christine, one of her biggest insecurities that she felt as a wife and not being able to provide naturally for her husband's family was like a big moment of shame for her and how her as the in-law, that was her like, that was like her thing her mother-in-law could pick at, you know? So I feel like fertility, you know, I think is something very kind of like very traditional Asian value, but that's something they do kind of emphasize, you know, if you read old books and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, so I think I I can only imagine if other women, even other Asian women, might feel a sense of shame because of this I don't know like requirement that they might have yeah, to fulfill. Yeah. And I think the thing that I find interesting about like the Eastern versus Western approach with fertility is that like maybe in media it's portrayed this way, but I remember watching Sex and the City and like Charlotte had a difficult time conceiving, and everyone mm-hmm. that's when they state acupuncture and things like that mm-hmm. to help the flow of fertility. But I also think that even though that's great, even though like Eastern medicine can help with that, that also doesn't discredit that people who are Asian also have difficulty conceiving as well, just because they have access to these type of medicines. So I don't know, I just thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah. I mean, also for like Eastern medicine is very good for like um, helping your body recoup to a more healthy state. If that is maybe the root of your infertility. Like for me personally, if I do, I still plan to have kids natu- like try to have them naturally. Mm-hmm. And if I 
am um, hitting some issues, I might first go the route of Eastern medicine and try the acupuncture and all of that. And then mm-hmm. go into IVF if it's, if those things are not working. But I think when it comes to egg freezing, it's much more about, there's this awesome like medical technology available to us now that was not as popular in mm-hmm. the in previous generations where as a woman you can preserve your eggs and just have a little bit more insurance mm-hmm. like if you to give yourself more time um and i think my next question is something i think about if i want to freeze, freeze my eggs and i'm pretty sure this is a concern or something that people are flagging is when it comes to egg freezing i feel like the one of the biggest barriers is of course the cost because you hear how expensive it is you don't mind sharing do you mind giving us like the price breakdown and just share with us how much did it cost for you to freeze your eggs yes this was actually a big factor for me that was heavy on my mind for a long time and honestly i think that when you first hear the number you'll probably feel like oh my god that's too much money but the more you break it down and you start to realize where everything goes like it kind of makes sense it's a medical procedure and uh you know there are different ways to assist funding it I do want to preface with the fact that every individual's health situation is going to be different. Um, And then depending on the clinic you go to, things might differ. uh, And the treatment plan that you receive might differ, right? But for my specific situation, the approximate cost for one cycle of egg freezing um, was around like ten dollars to $12,000. And I would say on average, probably you can expect between twelve dollars to $18,000. Um, and how I would break down the different parts of the cost for one for one cycle is one you have the doctor visits, which covers things like the ultrasound costs, um, their assessment, any blood draws that they do. And for um, the office I went to is maybe like 150 plus per visit. Um, so that you know that's I think it's pretty typical of like when you go to the doctor for a visit for more intense involved um, assessments. And then for the actual surgical procedure to go in and remove the eggs um, because it is considered surgery, even though it's quick, um, it is also about five to ten thousand dollars for that doctor to go in for the cost of the anesthesia, all that kind of stuff. And then the medications that you're putting in your body over the course of the first cycle of the injections, that will vary. It's a pretty wide range from three to 10K. And once again, I've learned from talking to a lot of women that we all had different treatment plans depending on, you know, like you're taking different drugs at different dosages at different things because of your specific body type or like situation, but that will run you anywhere from three to 10 K. And then there's the cost of storing the eggs. So now that they've extracted them, you have like, it's like paying rent (laughs) to store them. So you could either do it on a monthly basis or you could do it on an annual basis. Uh, For me, it made more sense. Like I want this on a five-year basis. So they have a special kind of discount for that, but that came out to be also a couple thousand. Mm. Keeping in mind, that that is only for one cycle and um, from what I understand many women I've, I've spoken to have gone through multiple cycles of, of egg freezing in order to collect um, a greater sample amount to store like I myself plan to go through the cycle about two to three times but like I said there is financial aid available the first thing you want to think about is to go to your employer and see if they cover it I know it's not very common, but some companies, and I've heard like the larger ones, will have like funding set aside um, to support their uh, any of their employees on fertility things. Uh, the second is you can also check in with your insurance, although to be completely transparent and honest, I've heard also that their insurance generally does not cover a lot of this because it's considered elective. It's not really a, a necessity. 
But the one that I did find success with was looking at other third parties. So the finance um, office for the clinic that I am at recommended to me these two um, different sites that you could go to and apply. So one is Reunite Assist and it's ReuniteRx.com. We'll leave this in the show description. Um, and then the second is FertilitySavings.com. And you go in there and you enter some of your like tax information and history, and then they'll assess whether you qualify for some coverage. And I was able to get some discount on my medications. So that was helpful. Um, so yeah, you know, make sure that you do your research and try to find, find any possible way to kind of help lighten the load a little bit on your wallet. Do you know what the secret is to keep a baby's skin healthy? The secret is a diaper that doesn't leave skin wet. You've heard me talk about Pampers Swathers on our podcast many, many times now, and that's because Pampers Swathers is the diaper for healthy baby skin. Pampers Swathers absorbs wetness better than a leading value brand and provides up to 100% leak-proof skin protection and up to 0% skin irritation. And if you're a fan of Pampers, you've got to check out their new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes, which clean better than Huggies Natural Care and are five times stronger, so they resist tearing during a diaper change. With free and gentle, mess meets its match. And if you're like me and you love saving and getting rewarded for something you gotta buy anyway, like diapers, don't forget to download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. You can redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Try Swaddlers with new Pampers free and gentle wipes for healthy baby skin. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So how long does this whole process take and how was your day-to-day life affected during the process? So the whole process of one cycle takes about 8 to 12 days of when you first start with injections all the way to getting the extraction. But if you are someone who's like, oh, I want to get this done in the next two weeks, it's not going to happen. I would at least like give yourself a month or two. And that's because in order to even do the consultation, they they want to check your ovaries while you're on your period. So you have to time, if you want like two inspections before going into to starting the process, you have to, then that's like, you have to wait until your period starts, right? And then they'll they'll evaluate your ovaries and your follicles for that, that period cycle. And then they'll be like, this is the count. And then they said, come back the next time you have your period. And then they'll inspect again. 
And then if the, the count looks good, then they're like, do you want to start now? And if you are already like, oh, I feel, I feel good about, I know for sure I want to do this, I can start. But if you're like me and I was still kind of like, ooh, I still, because my, my follicle count was low and he's like, maybe we wait one more round to just for sure check that this is your average follicle count. So I waited a third month and then it was the third month when it was consistent that I was like, I'll start it now. So for me, it took like, I started in maybe May, June and then August is when I just finally completed my first cycle. Um, so just for timing for anyone else to kind of think through that as you plan for this. So question on that. So you needed to check to make sure that the follicle count was the same and consistent throughout each of your periods. Yes. I guess, why is that the case? Because he needs to, or the doctor needs to understand how much, how high of a dosage to give you or what is the purpose of that? Yeah, I think it's, um, for them, usually it's like whatever your situation is in one period is probably going to be similar in terms of follicle count in the next period. But they always want to check just in case, right? Because what if what if that one month you came in, you were highly stressed and it was like different, and then the next month you come in is a different number? They kind of like the follicle count, um, they want to know what they're working with so that they know how many, when when you start to do the injections, how many are they trying to juice up and stuff. So it do, yeah, it does, it impacts kind of the treatment plan. Mm, I see, I see, okay. So I would say, I would break down the process into three stages. The first stage is the very beginning where I first did just a phone call before even stepping foot in the office and, um, you know, shared with him my particular situation, why I was thinking about it. And he did say, you know, you're of the age where it's a pretty good time to do this. Your eggs are still, they're mature now like you're you're getting more mature but you're still far enough from 40 which I think is usually when they say the general cutoff point is but I would say for anyone younger I've heard people as like in their late 20s and early 30s freezing their eggs I think if you already know that you uh, want to have kids and that you might want some time and insurance then you can do it yeah so the, it was the first phone call to be like is this right for you cool you're still interested and then you come in for an initial consultation and then they actually do all the physical stuff they draw your blood they do what are called intravaginal ultrasounds and this is something that I was not prepared for and I would like to prepare anyone out there for any of you women that um, if you start to go th- if you decide to go through the process of freezing your eggs you get you're gonna have to get comfortable with them going up your vagina with a small little um, uh, camera to get an ultrasound inspection of your uterus and your ovaries it sounds intimidating but honestly just like getting a pap smear if you just relax it is very, it's totally fine. And the clinic I went to, they they lube that shit up. So it's not, <laughs> if you relax, you know, it goes in and and everything is fine. And also, I know uh, oftentimes fertility doctors are men. They will always have a nurse who is a female in the room when the doctor is doing that. So that's also for women. I hope you be aware that if you have a male doctor and they're not doing it naturally, ask for a female nurse to be in the room Um to, to, to make sure that you're feeling comfortable. Um, question, back to the whole anatomy thing, anatomy scan of just like where the uterus is, where the ovaries are. Yeah. Aren't the ovaries at the end of your fallopian tube? So that camera <laughs> has to go through your fallopian tube into your ovaries? Oh, good question. So they're not actually, um, like when they go in, the the thing that they see first up here is like the uterus and then they just they only have to tilt the camera a little bit to the left or the right so they're not they're not inserting it high up there it's actually going i'd say it's probably only going like maybe three inches into your body Hmm. and then they and then the and then the 
either the tech or the doctor just like moves it from left to right to get your your ovaries. Um, okay. Yeah. So it's not like it's not like going deeply into your organs. That's a good question though. That I would think that too, because <laughs> your ovaries are at the end of your fallopian tubes, right? So it has, I would think yeah. it has to go through your fallopian tubes to get down to the ovaries. The, the fallopian tubes are the things that are like fingers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think it's actually like your uterus and then they're able to tilt. And then so if you imagine the fallopian tube is here and then this is the uterus, they're able to come in and then they just switch to the left or right. Oh, so I don't okay. I'm not sure why, but yeah, they don't they don't need there's no needing to go into anything. Okay. As you can see in the camera, it's the moment they go in just a little bit, an inch, you're already kind of in the base of the of the uterus and you can see. Okay. Maybe there's some, like, x-ray tech situation going on there. So <laughs> yeah. Whoever's listening out there and is actually, like, a tech here, right? Like, <laughs> you ladies are ridiculous right now. Anyway, you can see your ovaries from a thing that goes into your uterus and doesn't yes. go too far. Got it. Yes, yeah. And the tip is just always to relax, and it, it, it will not be painful. It just feels a little awkward when it's first going. It's like putting in a tampon, but then now they're just swiveling the tampon around. But it's, like, highly lubed up, and you barely feel it. Um, so yeah, that's part of stage one is they do all that assessment. And then I started, uh, taking the supplements, which is not required. Um, I started taking a prenatal vitamin and a number of other vitamins to prep my body. It's not a requirement of course, but I was thinking if I'm going to put my body through this and I'm going to pay for this, I'm going to try to be as healthy as I can and get my money's worth. So I started taking prenatals and for some women, they also will uh, prescribe birth control to help get all of your follicles in the same cycle. Because Mm -hmm. I had a lower follicle count, they were already kind of pretty much synced. So it would have been unnecessary to put me on birth control. For stage one, how did my day-to-day change? Um, I, on a day-to-day basis, was taking a lot of supplements. So I had to track, I was taking like seven seven vitamins in the morning, two during the midday and two at night. And this is because I was, once again, this was not required. The doctor said, if you want to, these are the things I'd recommend. And a lot of these supplements were things that would help with managing stress that also help with like cell regeneration, a number of things. It just meant that my day to day though, I was popping a lot of pills. Um, so if anyone is, you know, I, that didn't bother me too much cause I'm already, I already very used to taking my daily multivitamin. Um, so was not too invasive. Stage two, once you're ready to start the procedure. So for some women, that's when they get their next period. For me, I continued in stage stage one through two periods because I wanted to make sure that my my situation was consistent because I had a lower follicle count. So my third period, um, I came in between the third and fifth day. So once you start bleeding, you call your clinic and you're like, okay, I started my cycle. I need to go in now. Um, and they'll set an appointment and you come in uh, and then they'll inspect and like, okay, the follicles are pretty similar to what you had before. So then they'll start to you on your medications. And this is the part that some people get really scared about where you're going to have to inject yourself. Um, uh, and I will share from my personal experience, it was not as bad as I had anticipated. And for various reasons, I'll share some tips that other people shared with me later. But I also want to say, because medication differs so much from person to person, you might not have the same experience that I did. You you're, you might have a friend who went through it and you have a different um, treatment plan of different medications. Because I've heard some women from the beginning, they had to mix multiple vials and take three shots per day. For me, it started with just one like less invasive shot and it was like a very thin, thin needle. But essentially you start getting the medications. It's specially delivered because only certain pharmacies um, kind of have that medication. And... Um, and then you go in for basically in the eight to 10 days that you're doing that, you go in for, I think two to three appointments. And each time they're going in 
with that friendly little microscope thing, (laughs) checking the state of your ovaries, and then maybe adjusting your medication. At this point, some women start to experience bloating. Um, I actually didn't really feel bloat until the very end. So the first like five days where I was injecting myself, I mostly was like, didn't feel very much difference in my energy levels too. Um, To give some context for anyone who's thinking about your day-to-day, this was around the time that for ABG, we were doing like shoots and different things like that. And also we had, we were doing like some social meetups with our friends um, at, at night. And so during, during the times when I would usually do my shots, I like, I just brought the shot with me in a cooler bag and I left it in Ellen's fridge and then did it. Um, you know, so I didn't, I didn't feel like I had to adjust my schedule too much, but that's also because my specific treatment plan, I just had that one shot and like medications I was taking by, by pill form. Um, oh, and then the other thing is I did stop my nighttime face routine. I had to change out my night cream because you uh, should avoid retinol when you're, I think it's, they say when you're pregnant, but also if you're trying to, cause it could affect the egg quality. So I've just changed out my night cream to a non-retinol formula for the time I'm in the, in the process. And when you're breastfeeding too. Yes. Yes. Yeah. When you were giving yourself these shots and you're saying in the, it's small, but it looked quite scary for anyone who wants to see what the process <laughs> is actually like, check out Janet's personal Instagram her stories she saved that as a highlight and I remember when I was watching it it was like watching a scary movie I was literally watching (laughs) through like my fingers and I'm like oh my god is she going in is she going on I would like pause the story and like let go and pause it again just to like because I like I hate needles but yeah yeah you were very brave in in doing that um I would have definitely flinched like a lot more but I just thought like damn go Janet for doing that. Aw, thank you. I, I did have a question though. When you're administering the shot yourself, like I saw that you were going at a general area. Is this supposed to be like where your uterus is or are you just like stabbing your stomach or like <laughs> where's it going? <laughs> they, they they actually give you a little chart and they say anywhere that's like an inch below your belly button. So anywhere and they tell you to switch off from left to right. Um, because you don't want to be, you know, re-injecting the same point. So if you just go about an inch below your belly button, um, anywhere to the left or the right. But then actually the nurse that was teaching me to do my injections, she says, honestly, anywhere in the belly, except for your belly button, because that doesn't make sense and would be painful. (laughs) But she said, really, anywhere on your belly is fine. Really? It it goes through, yeah, as long as it goes through... it goes through your skin. Although there is, there's intravascular, which is through the skin. I believe that's right. And then there's intramuscular, which is some needles that need to go to the muscle level. And I, I know I've heard a lot of other people using this. For some reason, for my treatment plan, I did not require any intramuscular shots. Mine were only um, on the skin level. So I did everything through my belly. But there are some people, they have to do shots that are intramuscular. And for that, they recommend going through your butt because... Yeah. Mm. And that's where sometimes a having a partner to do it for you helps. Um, or um, or like uh, I've heard also you can some clinics, you can call them and they'll send a person to come mm. and do it for you. I see, I see. Mm. But this is so, the medication is all supposed to travel to your uterus and to your fallopian tubes and your ovaries. You know, that's a really good question. I don't I don't know if it's just that it gets into your blood system mm. and maybe just through your blood system. It helps with uh, with that kind of stuff. But I would assume it probably being, you're injecting it close to the uterus right. probably because it is eventually making its way to affecting that organ. Okay. I see. I see. Because if, if that were me, I'd be like, you need to tell me exactly where to stab because I'm, I'm not doing this oh, twice. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah. Like, <laughs> exactly where you need me to stab. Yeah. Draw an X on my you know, body. I think Tattoo what, it. 
<laughs> I think what helped me a lot um, was the fact that my nurse, my nurses and the people in the clinic were very chill and really friendly and they made it seem like it was not a big deal. Mm. I think that if they had been like, you need exactly this point, I would have been like, what the fuck? I don't, you know, mm-hmm. I'm not trained to do this. I don't know. But she was very like, look, we make this very user friendly. People do this all the time. Honestly, it's anywhere on your belly. Just don't do it in your belly button, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know. And then she's like, people say it should be the same time of day all the time, but as long as it's in the evening. So she just made it more approachable. I don't know if that's right or wrong. Maybe mm-hmm. there's doctors out there that are listening and it's like, you should be more prescriptive about it. But for me personally, I think having that interaction and also having many friends that I talked to about, you know, who had shared doing the, the shots on themselves, like I was like, okay, I think this is like, it's it's doable, mm. you know, and I mentally prepared for it. I think because I had started researching, remember, like thinking about this like a year ahead and then a couple months ahead, I was like already mentally prepared. Like I'm going to be having to give myself shots. Yeah. I think everyone has different tolerance when it comes to shots. I mean, I went to get my vaccine with Helen and I know it's very <laughs> different. And I think when I saw, I was there when actually when Janet's like, oh, I need to like, I need to do my shot. And I go, can I watch? Because I've never seen someone go through the egg freezing process or have a friend. So I was like, it was really interesting just to see her like get her shot ready and like jab herself. And and I think, I think as Janet did share with me, she's like, my nurse, you know, made it feel really like she kind of, she was so chill and made me loose enough or eased my anxiety towards these shots. Because honestly, even as someone who hasn't had a friend that went through egg freezing, I think two things I hear about the most that like the highest concern is the cost and the shot process. Because I hear like, you hear all these very like different stories you're like oh I don't know like it just it sounds really scary and I think yeah. for me as someone who's like been curious seeing you go through the shot thing I was like oh okay I can't yeah. do it myself probably but I thought it was really interesting to see Janet be very you know mature and be like oh, <laughs> grab her stomach she poked herself I was like oh cool <laughs> no you know and I would say that that is like um the more you can just expose yourself like mm-hmm. to if you have a friend who's doing it, yeah, ask and be like, do you mind? Could I like FaceTime and just watch you do it? Because yeah. it makes it less intimidating when yeah. you see someone doing it, right? And even my friends were like, look, if you need to, you ladies even said you can like FaceTime us if you need someone like moral support, you know? So I feel like it's very, there's different ways that you can do to really like try to make it less intimidating for yourself. Hmm. That brings us to the third stage, which is when you actually do the surgery to extract your eggs. Um, so like I had shared while I was doing the shots, I didn't feel too many symptoms. I've heard a lot of women start to feel because you're putting in more hormones in your body. They would feel the the symptoms of PMS. I felt it very slightly. I started feeling very bloated at the end. And then, but before that I started feeling a little bit more moody. I just noticed that like it was a little bit moody and I also was craving more ice cream, which is like, I don't usually crave ice cream. Um, and, but yeah, I did have a little bit of a sweet tooth and then was a little bit more sensitive and emotional. And then near the uh, the and a couple days before the procedure is when I got I did feel really bloated. But to be fair, I was also I was like craving a lot of ice cream and I also craved bread. So I was like snacking a lot at night and I'm like I don't know if I'm bloated because of food or <laughs> bloated because of my hormones. Um, but it feels very similar to like a period mm. type of experience, you know, just a little bit more pronounced. And then as you get like a day or so away, because they are expanding your ovaries, I was feeling more swelling. And I, once again, I want to preface that this was my experience using lower doses of medication. For those friends that I heard who had more medications, they felt pretty more pronounced bloating. So I I went in for my last uh, in-person appointment, I think like two to three days before I set the appointment for the procedure. And for anyone who's trying to work your schedule around this, when you start 
the injection process, you know that the extraction is going to happen between 8 to 12 days out. You won't know until literally maybe 3 to 4 days before the actual surgery when you'll actually need to have it. So it's kind of, you know, be aware that your schedule needs to be a little bit flexible in that way because they're trying to see when your ovaries are at the right stage based on the medication you're giving yourself. Um, But once it's the day of the procedure, I shared on my IG stories that it was very quick because it literally, the actual surgery is like 10 minutes and you're in and out of the office for a total of like two to two and a half hours. So number of hours, not a lot, but... It is still surgery. So what that means is you have to fast for eight hours before. You can't have any food in your system because you're going to be put under anesthesia. So if you have any leftover food or liquid in your system, it could get into your lungs while you're unconscious. That's why. So they literally told me if you even accidentally like drink a bunch of water or whatever before, we can't do the, within eight hours, we can't do the surgery just because it's for your own, you know, safety. Um, And so that means that they do put an IV in. Uh, I have the only other surgery I'd ever had was my wisdom tooth being taken out or wisdom teeth. And I did have a local anesthesia for that, but they put it through my veins in my like the, the other side of my elbow. So kind of where they draw blood. And I, you know, I was like kind of used to getting poked there, but I've never had an IV go through my, the top of my hand. So she used like a numbing cream, but I still felt that. <laughs> I know Helen shared from, if you listen to her pregnancy um, uh, recount episode where she goes in detail, she also, she was like, that was the worst part, right? It was worse than the epidural. Yeah, the IV. I don't know why. That that was so painful because they were just jabbing so many times to figure out. And also make sure you hydrate oh. beforehand before you get an IV because they could not find my veins and they were just like digging for one, like literally digging with a needle. And you know how much I hate needles already. I'm just like, oh my God. Hell no. Stop yeah. it. <laughs> find it. So that that for me, um, actually, they, they gave me a sheet to prep before and they said as a tip, uh, the anesthesiologist told me that I should eat watermelon the night before. Mm. So before the eight hours, because watermelon will, because it has a lot of water, probably just drink a lot of water. So it makes your your veins easier to find. So she actually, I was only pricked once, but it was more that like I could feel her going in. Like once she, she crossed the skin, it wasn't really painful, but it was the going in that was just a little bit, a little bit of a pinch, but it wasn't, I don't want to deter anyone too much. Like she used numbing cream and I know that there's, I've heard there's a lot of people who can do it well. So, Mm. um, but yes, prepare to know that that is going to be part of the process. Um, and oh man, now I feel kind of bad. I don't want to like disincentivize people from doing this, but I have some other parts that kind of made me nervous. I think it's important. It's important to share (laughs) the reality of it. Yeah. So, okay. So to be honest, I, I was pretty chill. I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't nervous about the IV. I wasn't really that nervous about much of it. Um, because I didn't know what really, I don't know. I think I had heard that it was just gonna be such a short procedure. Right. Mm -hmm. So they take me into the bathroom. I change into the gown and then I come back and you're in this like cot. So it's kind of like the waiting room, but it's not, it's not the general waiting room. It's the room with the patients who are waiting to go into the one single operating room. So it's like going into a hospital where they each have their own little curtains in your, in your beds. So that's where they then put in the IV and prep you before you go in. And I walk myself to the surgery room. So you're not put under before that, but you're in this, you're in your gown, you're laying on the bed, they have the IV in and you, I can hear other women around me who are waking up from their procedures or, you know, getting theirs um, started because they, so what happens is they, they um, yeah, you go into the surgery room and then they will you out back into that main area while before you wake up. But you don't go under until you're in the surgery room, if that makes sense. And so I heard a woman 
a couple beds down from me who uh, had just come out of her procedure. And I could hear her saying there, her very calmly though, her and the doctor were kind of talking about how she was feeling a bit of pain. And the, and the doctor was like, oh, that's strange because everything went totally fine, you know? Um, and she's like, every, you know, everything went, went well. And she's like, what is it like a, what type of pain would you describe it? Is it more bloating or is it more like a sharp pain? She's like, it feels a little bit more like a sharp pain, but it's like not bad. Like I'm not, it just, it's just different. And she said, because I had this done two other, the first two extractions, it was like so easy. I didn't feel anything. But now this third time, for whatever reason, like I'm feeling a little bit of, of sharp pain. So the doctor was like, hmm, well, you know, we did um, switch out our needles a bit. So for the extraction, they use an intravaginal laser the size of a needle. So it's like very, very thin. But I think that clinic or whatever, that operation site, they had run out of the super thin ones. So they had just gone up just a little bit thicker. But she's like, it literally is like some women don't even notice the difference, but some women just complain that it's a little bit more sore. So the way that you're sore from bloated from a period, they might feel more of that. So she just, you know, gave her, she's like, I'll just give you a little bit more uh, medication, pain meds. And she wasn't like screaming in pain or anything, but I think that prepared me also. It's like, oh, if you do this multiple rounds, maybe you might be more sensitive and that small things like the needle they use could change potentially your experience, right? Mm-hmm. So that was all. But <laughs> but um, but yeah, they put in the IV and then um, the nurse held my IV bag and my, and my gown and walked me into, so I walked myself into the operating room. I put my legs up. You're in the stirrup as if it's like, you know, see in the movies, like you're going to give birth. <laughs> And then the anesthesiologist comes in um, and she has like the, the, the anesthesiology medication, <laughs> I don't know, in this giant needle. Um, but it's, she just needs to hook it up to the IV and she told me this, this stuff is really strong. So you're going to be out like, we're just going to put you in a little nap. Um, and then they put in a little bit of the air thing in my nose. They started it and she says, you'll feel a bit of tingle. Like you'll feel a little bit of iciness because it's going into your bloodstream. So you'll feel a little bit of that. You might feel a little bit of a, like a, I think they said it's like a metallic taste in your mouth. Um, and then, but it was only a couple seconds and then I was out. And the next time I woke up, I was back in the waiting room and I felt good. I was like, wow. And they're like, everything went well, it's fine. It's only procedure itself, I think was like, couple minutes and then they take you out for about they wait about 10 minutes after that you wake up but you are a a bit groggy um and uh and then you just change out and you make sure you have someone who gives you um a ride because you cannot be operating heavy machinery after surgery so just as a thing to expect for post-surgery post-removal um I felt really great once I first woke up and I'm like, I feel like I could totally go back to work right now. And then um, I got home and I got back into bed and I was like, I'm going to take a nap. And I was out for like five hours, like really, really out. Like I, I could feel that when I started waking up, my body was so, so heavy. When I woke up, my mouth was like open, you know, when you're like a really big, (laughs) deep sleep because you're like so just like passed out. Um, and I also had like really stressful dreams. And I don't know if maybe that's the, the residual leftover of the anesthesiology, but I was, and it probably just heightens the anxiety that you're, you're thinking about. But I just had all these scenes about like thinking about surgery and things going wrong and having the multiple procedures and trying to drive myself home when I shouldn't. So just for anyone afterwards, anesthesiology might have some kind of trippy dream experiences. Uh, and then you're also then feeling a little bit of bloating and soreness, but nothing unlike a regular period. And then they just tell you to avoid carbohydrates and sugar for the next couple of days, just because out of like any other reason when you're on your period, it could 
create additional discomfort, right? And I would say within that first 24 hours, I did feel like I had surgery a little, like in my, not that I've ever had surgery anywhere else, but it's like, it felt tender in my uterus area. And I did have a little bit of spotting. It wasn't heavy bleeding, but it was spotting. You know, I took a little bit of Tylenol, but honestly, after getting a good night's sleep, I was totally fine the following day. And they just tell you to be careful to not lift anything heavy for about three to five days. Um, So do plan around that and no heavy exercise for three to five days. But otherwise, within 24 hours, you're pretty much back to normal. And so in terms of what you might need to plan on the day to day, the week leading up to uh, is kind of uncomfortable because you're going to be a little bit bloated. Um... Uh, make sure you take the full day off of the actual procedure. Um, I, at least I would suggest from my experience, I had the procedure early in the morning and I took the whole day to just kind of sleep. Um, and then for about a week or so after, you're going to be feeling some bloating and cramping. And then you'll actually start your period in seven to 10 days mm-hmm. because the way that um, you've been medicating your, yourself is to force you into the ovulation cycle. So they're grabbing the eggs and then seven to 10, later, seven to 10 days later, you're going to get your period again. Uh, and then if you choose to, you can start the whole procedure again for another cycle, which I'm going to go in when I start my period to see how I feel. And if it's good, I might just go right through. If not, I might take a break and then wait for the next month that I have my period for the following cycles. For this extraction, were they able to tell you how many eggs they were able to retrieve? Yes. Yeah, so initially, right after, they'll tell you how many they took out. And But the thing that matters is not necessarily just getting the eggs. It's have are they able to reach maturity? Like, are they the right quality? So for that, it was a couple of hours after the procedure, they called me to let me know how many of them were matured. And then I got another follow-up call the day after. And unfortunately, because it was the weekend, I didn't pick up. So I actually still don't know how many okay. <laughs> I have. But they are able to tell you like right after the procedure, giving you kind of an update of how many they got. And then in the days leading up, how many are of the right quality to count well. That's, a, that's very good that they do that. I feel like that's something I'd be very curious about if I go through the process. Um, Jay, you like literally gave us a very thorough breakdown of every stage. And I could tell it's your first time in there anesthesia, huh? Except for the wisdom tooth okay. um, where I've been under. But yeah, I think maybe because the, I think what they give you for this is heavier mm. because it was, I think it's a combination of a sedation and anesthesiology because it was, yeah, I was, I was like out. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, I guess throughout this whole process, like for you, what was actually the scariest part? And I guess what was like the coolest part? So the scariest part was really the post, post procedure anesthesia crazy dreams like I did not I maybe it's it was the scariest part for me because I didn't anticipate it Mm. like I knew I already knew that I was going to be injecting myself I already knew that I was going to be going under anesthesia um and the only other experience I had to compare to was my wisdom teeth procedure um I just didn't I don't know why I didn't anticipate the the being like even though it was a short period only 24 hours but for those few hours after I was like whoa (laughs) did not anticipate that But the coolest part was really like learning more about the process of fertility and my body. Because I think if not for this, I probably wouldn't know these things or start asking these questions until I was like starting to try to get pregnant, right? Um, But now I feel like I'm a little bit more informed of like the state of my body and maybe like how things work when it comes to fertility. And so that overall just feels good to be a little bit more knowledgeable. Um, and then also knowing that I can inject myself if I have to. I think there was a level of mental and phys- physical preparedness that this doing it multiple times gets you to a comfort level where you feel more self-confident that, hey, if something happens and I need to, like 
I can I can do that. Mm-hmm. There are obviously a lot of components to the process of freezing your eggs, but thank you for breaking it down for for all of us and providing all of this the details. Do you have any tips for anyone who is considering or already scheduled to start this process? Yes, um, I have a couple of tips, but I want to again preface with the fact that this is my personal experience. Um, and from talking to other friends, it seems like experiences may differ a bit from person to person based on their specific fertility situation and also based on the clinic or the doctor. But the first thing that I would want to prep someone with is to be prepared to potentially do multiple rounds. I went into this thinking that freezing your eggs is just like one-time procedure. Um, and for some people it could be, but I'm hearing more and more of women who will choose to do it multiple times. So just know that that's a possibility, um, to prepare yourself mentally as you go in. Second is intravaginal ultrasound. Just relax. No need to get freaked out over it. Kind of like putting in a tampon. If you are fighting it, it's going to be uncomfortable. Just relax your muscles and it should be fine. The third tip I would have is um, for the medications they give you, sometimes they come in different tubes. And after I had used the certain amount, like I had sometimes a little bit left over in between and I just threw that medication out. I, especially when it comes to folistin, which is a certain type of medication that I think most women, regardless of your treatment, it's pretty common that you probably have this. Um, keep Actually keep any leftover and just keep it in your fridge because the folistin is the one that you need to refrigerate. Um, some of them you don't need to. But if you have any leftover, a little bit in your, in, your, um, in your cases, keep it and then bring it back to the facility when you have a couple and they can actually aggregate it all into one new tube for you because the medication is expensive. It's like $300 for a mm-hmm. tiny tube. So I was throwing out like little millimeters without knowing. <laughs> um, so yes, refrigerated medication, keep any extra and see if they can help you use it, put it together into a bigger tube. Um, the other tip is ice pack for shots helps a lot with the pain. Um, but I would always recommend you do at least one shot first without anything. So you know that what, what type of impact you're having on your body before numbing it. Because if it's numb and you don't feel anything, you're just like jabbing it into yourself, that could be dangerous, right? But do one for yourself first without without any ice. And so you know kind of the, the density and what you're getting into. And then for the rest of the shots, I just, I used an ice pack for like a couple of seconds before. And then I would go in gently and slowly and I didn't even feel the needle. Um, and I did receive bruising. I got a lot of messages from other women who say that that's completely normal. A lot of them felt bruising and it wasn't even necessarily, it wasn't like it was like painful. It just, um, I guess that happens and it just, it does get a little sensitive in the area at near the end, but for the most part, bruising is normal. Um, and then the other tip that I would have is eat watermelon the night before your extraction so that you can avoid, or you can try to help them out with finding your veins for the IV, um, uh, and then the very last one would be supplements. Um, I don't, it's not required. I've talked to friends who did not get this from their doctors, you know, to recommend that they take prenatals or other things. But I, I feel like it helped me or maybe it just for me mentally helped me prepare for this whole thing for that. I was like taking vitamins for a good couple of weeks leading up to it. And honestly, I was able to get stuff off Amazon for about a hundred, $150 worth of, um, like vitamins and things. So it's really not that much of an extra cost for something that is, probably going to increase the quality of of your eggs. Sorry, I'm noting this stuff too. (laughs) This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... 
Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Okay, this is something I'd be very curious about. So Jay, if you go back, would you do anything differently? I think the obvious answer would be that maybe I should start this earlier, right? Like Mm -hmm. in my early 30s. But if I was completely honest, if you went, if I was like 37-year-old Janet going back to 31-year-old Janet, be like, Janet, you should freeze your eggs now. I think I don't, I still wouldn't listen to myself. And I think it's because you, you're always fighting the the difference between, you don't want to age too, you don't want to get too old so that you can't, you're not fertile enough to freeze the eggs. But you also don't necessarily want to just jump into to paying this amount of money and putting your body through this, right? Because mm-hmm. it is still, it's simple and it's accessible now, but it's still a lot to go through, right? And you're also banking on the fact that you're going to meet someone in a year and you could be pregnant. So as much as I would encourage people when you're younger to do it, I also understand the hesitancy because, you know, there because this is quite an investment of time and money. Mm-hmm. Um, and also for me particularly, if I was younger, maybe my follicle count would be different. And perhaps if I did this when I was 31, 32, they would have given me the full range of medication. And maybe for my experience to be different. And I and I personally, I felt okay with signing up for this process more because I liked that I was using less medication. Mm. So if I did this when I was younger, it may have been more intense. And then I don't know that I would have been as open to it. Um, and to be clear to listeners, I still plan on trying to get pregnant naturally. The hope is that in the next two or four years that I'll have a partner and, um, you know, that I can try to get pregnant with. The freezing of the eggs was just like, just in case, um, you know, that doesn't happen. Or as my doctor brought up, if you want more than one kid, you probably will not have an issue having your first kid in two or four years. If you want more than one kid, you might be starting to hit the point of infertility by your second, third kid. So this is much more just for future's sake, but I still plan on trying to get pregnant naturally. As you were going through this process, is there anything that surprised you that you can share with our listeners? Yeah, you know, um, I had been prepping myself. I knew that I wanted to share this on Instagram because I just felt like as a topic, like other people would probably... Uh, find it like informative but I did not expect that there would be so many messages and so many people who were messaging with like not support but with like their experiences so I didn't know how many people and actually people I know who have actually done this and frozen their eggs or who had gone through IVF but just didn't talk about it um crazy I actually got like the day after my surgery procedure I got a really long DM from an ex who now has like a two-year-old daughter um and it was like this like hey how are you doing I know it's been a long time I've been following your stories I just want to let you know that you're supported and my wife and myself like we have a daughter now but we went through like two to three years of IVF and we're now starting to you know try for kid number two Um, And he was just like, I know that the shots and the pills and all of the like nerves and the anticipation is hard, but it's totally worth it. And, you know, just stick through with it. And if you ever need anything, you can reach out. So that was really, I think I love that 
a that you know having having access to social media technology nowadays can create those kinds of connections for people but i think i was just really shocked by how many women actually have frozen their eggs um, or have gone through ivf it's a lot more than i thought if you are someone who find yourself in a similar situation as myself meaning you're pretty certain that you want children and you're a bit on the older side of your 30s um, and your main reservation is that you're intimidated by the process of egg freezing, I'd say that it's a pretty involved process, but also not as scary as I had initially anticipated. And given my particular situation that I am 37, I do want kids, like I'm glad I, I'm going through this procedure right now. And I know it might be confusing because I keep saying that it's easier than I thought it would be, but it was also really involved. Um, and I think I do want to share that as positive as I was trying to be throughout this p- process, you know, I didn't necessarily make light of each of the experiences, but I was always trying to put a positive spin on it, around each step, right? When it comes to going to the consultations, um, doing injections on myself, uh, there were still very many moments when I felt incredibly vulnerable and kind of emotional and worried and sad um, or like anxious, you know, which I think is normal because it is a pretty involved physical process. And having only gone through getting my wisdom teeth out, I had never had physical surgery done on my body. And the the experience of being physically vulnerable where you're like, someone could run up and punch me in the stomach and this would fucking hurt, (laughs) you know, like that is a very different experience that I had never had before. And for other women who are who would go through this process, if you haven't had surgery before, that is an experience. But with that said, I will still say like, I am happy I am doing this. So I I guess I just want to share that there are two sides to this experience. Mm. I like that you're sharing that. No one better punch Janet in the stomach. I would kick her ass. (laughs) I just had a visual of that. I was like, hell no. (laughs) Or I was just thinking like, what if I like, if I like, like in walking to the bathroom, I was like, what if I just like tripped right now and fell? Like, you know, because it's like you're still, and I'm sure you know after childbirth, right? It's like you feel so vulnerable. Yeah, you got to walk extra slow because you're also extra (laughs) clumsy because you're off the anesthesia. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I had a separate question actually I wanted to ask you because I know this is something we talk about when we were hanging out and and I think you shared this, you had this conversation with our other friends who are also in their later 30s that are thinking about egg freezing or gone through it. I think the fact that you're seeking your baby daddy through the dating process, it put on this pressure for you during dating, right? Now that you have yeah. frozen your eggs, has that changed your perception or perspective on dating? I'm actually really glad you asked that because that, that was actually my first gut reaction answer. But then when I was preparing for this episode, I was thinking of all the other details. But yeah, the truth is, a big factor of why I think that it's been helpful for me to do it now, besides the biology of it, is that in dating, it's really hard to mentally disattach yourself from your biological timeline and to not psych yourself out or psych the guy out. And I've talked to other friends who are also older and single and dating and want kids. Is like, it's really challenging to, to put that aside. And so they say, yeah, when you freeze your eggs, there's a little bit of a mental burden that you kind of take off. Like I have done a course of action to ensure myself, I have a couple more years to find my man, right? Instead of mm-hmm. feeling like this needs to be the man or if he's not the man, it's got to be the next one. So yeah, that definitely, I would say, um, has been a huge benefit of doing this procedure now. Mm-hmm. That's good. I'm happy to hear that, that you could enjoy the dating experience a bit more. Yeah. And lastly, Jay, do you have any other things you want to share with our listeners about the overall process? 
I do want to prep anyone who is going to go through this experience that you're going to be interfacing with a lot of different parties. I know we would like it to just be, I have my one doctor and he or she does everything, but like most of the medical system in the US, you're interfacing with like 10 to 12 different people ultrasound tech one person or maybe multiple techs that you'll be seeing regularly a number of times throughout the, pr- the process. There will be the nurses that you talk to to review your medication. There will be the main doctor who is your, your, that you're assigned to in potentially working in a clinic with other doctors. They might have different doctors that are seeing you, but you're considered his client. So if you have questions, he's the one you call. Then there's the main doctors who evaluate you, which might be your main doctor sometimes and another doctor other times. Then there's the doctor who does the procedure for you, who could then be also a different doctor, but from the same clinic. And then there's the nurse who administers the IV for you that is different than the anesthesiologist who is actually putting you under. And then there's the front desk people that you're interfacing with for appointments and the finance department, which is totally separate, who you talk to about the actual fees for each of the parts of the procedure, not to mention the pharmacy that you talk to for the medication. So what I learned throughout all of this is that doesn't like I asked the nurse about a fee, a cost thing. She's like, I have no idea. So just know that like be prepared that you kind of have to manage your own case when it comes to this. And for me, I found it particularly helpful that my doctor was someone who literally he gave me his numbers, like text me anytime, call me. Um, They had an internal they had a dashboard system where I could send messages 24 hours a day and within 24 hours I'd get a response from either him or a person on his team. So just know that you're going to it's a pretty you have a lot of people that are involved. um, And it's important to find a doctor and nurse team that is responsive to you. The other thing is I had a lot of people DM me and share um, a book called Starts with an Egg. I personally didn't read it um, before I got into this, but for anyone out there who's interested, that's another resource. Um, And then the third thing I want to share is I know that, you know, I talked about some scary parts through all of this, but the, the messages that really stick out to me that I got through DMs were the women who said, um, it's the best thing you can do for yourself as a woman, as a single woman and sharing for themselves individually. Like it was the best investment that I made in myself in my thirties was to freeze my eggs. So, um, that really hit me. (laughs) Um, yeah. So thank you everyone for all of your messages and your words of encouragement and support. Uh, and for those of you who actively share tips and your personal experiences, I really, really appreciate it. it. It honestly made this whole experience of my first round really like, meaningful um and i felt so much less alone (laughs) um and i really hope that this episode is able to help anyone out there who is currently going through it who is thinking about going through it um to know that there there are things that you can expect but know that you're supported and a lot of people go through this and um also some of the resources that i i listed um like the two financial resources and then also the specific clinic that i went to we will leave in the show notes um as information um but yeah thank you all for listening and please if you enjoyed this episode, I guess maybe leave an egg emoji in, in the comments <laughs> of the IG post. Before we end today, we want to let you all know that we've started new mini podcast shows that now release every Tuesday. Tune in to K-Dreaming with Mel, Living Well with Janet, and Spill the Baby Tea with Helen. Each week we'll release a new episode from one of the shows right here on the Asian Boss Girl feed. So be sure to tune in to us on Tuesdays and Thursdays from now on. If you don't already, please follow us on Spotify, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and review, and share this episode with your friends. You can also support us through monthly donations at anchor.fm slash asianbossgirl support, or get some merch at asianbossgirl.myshopify.com. 
If you resonated with today's episode, let us know in the comments of our IG post. And if you'd like to put faces to our names, you can find us on YouTube where we share vlogs, an audience Q&A segment called Dear ABG, and much more. Our handle on both platforms is at Asian Boss Girl. If you'd like to send a shout out to a friend, check out our link tree in our link in bio and click on shout outs. And last but not least, thank you to our super talented editor, Michelle, for working all her magic on our episodes, including this one. And with that, we'll catch you all in the next episode. Bye. Bye.